Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. So we're seeing all sorts of bait and switch and smoke and mirrors and whatever analogies you want to use, both in international organizations, such as the Human Rights Council, etc. But then we're also seeing it among progressive nations and NGOs. And together, it's like a cabal of death. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a really extraordinary episode of What We Can't Not Talk About. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting a conversation with Valerie Huber, whose name should sound familiar to many of our careful listeners. Good morning, Valerie, and welcome to our show. Well, good morning. It's great to join you. So I said familiar to many because Valerie Huber served America during the Trump administration as Special Representative for Global Women's Health, an all-of-government designation similar to that of Ambassador-at-Large. During that time, Huber was also involved in domestic women's and adolescent health issues at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services as Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary for Population Affairs, Senior Policy Advisor, and Chief of Staff to the Assistant Secretary of Health. Did I get it all right, Valerie? That sounds about right. There were a lot of positions throughout my tenure that I assumed, but I will say the special representative position was probably the most gratifying. It was the most gratifying, and I guess the one that made you famous in the news, good and bad. And that's what we are going to talk about today, because today we invited you, Valerie, to talk about one of your greatest achievements during your appointment, at least that's what I think, which was the drafting and the signing of the Geneva Consensus Declaration. Before we do that, however, I would like to ask you a couple of questions, if I may. Sure. So the first one is this, how was the life of a woman and of a mother while working in the administration? It was wonderful. And really, because my focus was on women's health and adolescent health, but particularly women's health, I think it was really important. A woman was in a leadership position there. I received so much support for everything that I did in that position, from the White House to the Secretary of HHS. It was fantastic. And I have to say, you know, representing the United States of America and the American people in front of other nations was both humbling and exhilarating. And it was so exciting to hear country after country say how much they appreciated the Trump administration's focus on life and the protection of life and the sovereignty of nations to make their laws protecting life. So about that life you led during that time in the administration, if there's one thing you missed the most, what would that be? I think what I miss the most, that's a really good question. It has to be a tie between interacting with senior leaders in other countries who were like-minded on things that I spent every day working on, advancing health of women around the world and protecting life, understanding how various cultures can look at things through a different lens, but yet their dedication to those things were no less. I really missed that. The other shared thing that I think I missed was 
having such support from the highest level of government to protect life, to advance women's health. And particularly as I see such a change now, that breaks my heart every single day. Yeah, because as we will have time to say today, you're not new to these issues and you're not new to protecting life and adolescents from, you know, even the way they they live their sexuality. So having been a fighter, if you want, against forces for a long time, I imagine how nice it must have been. Last question about this. How was it to survive the constant growing of the media? You know, some of my colleagues who had similar attacks in the media were really devastated by that. But I think I've grown quite a thick skin that not only does it not bother me, I find that it also kind of puts an exclamation point on what we're doing, that if those who oppose the agenda of life and health are making a big deal about it in the media, then that means we're doing something well. And so it it actually was spurred me on rather than demoralized me. Absolutely. I totally agree. It's hard to maintain this feeling, but I totally agree with you. So, okay. Now, I said that we would talk about the Geneva Consensus Declaration. And so what I would try to do is I will pretend I know absolutely nothing about it. And I would therefore start with this question. What is it? So the Geneva Consensus Declaration really was the first time during any U.S. administration or any time globally that a group of countries assembled around certain pillars and agreed that they, that not only did they agree to these pillars, but they agreed to work together until they achieved success on these pillars. So the first pillar was promoting and expanding health and thriving for women around the world. The second was that there is no international right to abortion and the ability to protect life in our own countries. The third was the recognition that the family is the foundational unit of every society and especially every healthy society. And then finally, the fourth is the sovereign right of every country to be able to legislate on these sensitive issues absent outside pressure. So, Valerie, if this is the four pillars or the four core principles, I just have some, you know, immediate questions and reaction. Again, pretending I have no no idea what you're talking about and assuming that. You mentioned that the first pillar is a commitment to improve women's health. But question, is that not already the case in international law? Well, one would think it should be and one would think it is. The unfortunate fact, though, I learned this very early as we began negotiating both in international fora and also in talking to other countries that too often women's health issues were overtaken by a radical abortion agenda. And that is an issue where there's really never going to be unanimity of agreement or opinion across the various nations. And so what it did was the debate became focused on abortion and real health gains for women fell off the table. And I've seen that time and time again, and I'm seeing it now as well, that women are either dying 
suffering from lifelong health consequences or life-altering health conditions where we already know how to prevent it, we already know how to treat it, and except in certain parts of the world, it's not even a condition that women suffer from. So this, in many cases, is just an unconscionable choice. Well, it's always an unconscionable choice. But when we already know how to prevent so many women from having to suffer from health conditions, and we're not putting our emphasis together on solving those, but instead we're fighting over abortion, something that does the opposite of prolonging or preserving life, right? There's just no excuse for it. Yeah, no excuse if one agrees. I mean, assuming that, right, we protect all life and the life in the womb, if the matter of cost comes up, then that would be the same for the elderly or the sick. Like if the matter of, you know, if the cost of something gets into the picture, then I would say goodbye to human rights and fundamental rights. But on the topic of rights, second pillar is no international right to abortion. We already had Professor Castaldi here in the past, you know, a scholar that was just like telling us how there is no absolute treaty in international law that declares abortion a right. Why do you think that there is still confusion on that? Well, there's a real effort to make abortion as an international right as a result of customary law and policies. And this has been an ongoing effort and attempt for many years. It didn't begin when President Trump took office. It didn't end there. It began decades ago. Small incremental steps toward that declaration and taking terms and redefining them and redefining them as meaning abortion. And then UN agencies are very good at taking resolutions that have been passed by the member states where member states have understood those terms to not include abortion. And then when it is expressed and funded within a program, it actually is pushing abortion. So we're seeing all sorts of bait and switch and smoke and mirrors and whatever analogies you want to use, both in international organizations, such as the Human Rights Council, et cetera. But then we're also seeing it among progressive nations and NGOs. And together, it's like a cabal of death, really, pushing an agenda and forcing it upon nations that are aid-dependent that may be sold an agenda through a description that doesn't include abortion. And then once they agree, then abortion is a part of it. And I mean, it's just without excuse, the tactics that are being used the world over for this agenda. Yeah, it's like an orchestra playing and playing all the same song. And as a lawyer, what comes to mind is that this resolution, the soft law, which is not law, is not binding, but then the European court or the inter-American court decides to mention it in its judgment. And that's something that just recently happened at the European Parliament with that resolution on abortion as a right, even in Europe, which had never said anything like that. Again, a resolution which does not have the force of law, but which will, of course, be used as if it did. So back to the declaration, it has support of family, which is another international law obligation. And then defend the sovereign right of every nation to make laws on these sensitive issues. So the accomplishment that you had with this Geneva Consensus Declaration was that it was signed by several states. Is that 
right? Yes. We had 35 countries representing every region of the world, more than 1.6 billion people represented in those nations. But there were several things that made it very unique. Yes, that it was signed, but it was signed as a result of agreement at the highest levels in most of these countries. Oftentimes, the president or prime minister had to agree before they they put their name on it. So this was not an agreement that was taken lightly because they knew the kind of controversy that these issues have unfortunately held in international dialogue. But in addition to that, it wasn't just a small corner of the world that agreed that this was a good idea, but there were nations representing every region of the world, multiple cultures, multiple religions, multiple geopolitical uh, histories and understandings. I mean, you could not get more diverse. And as we had the signing ceremony, and because of COVID, it was virtual, but senior members of governments, whether they were minister of health or minister of foreign affairs or someone else very senior in the government, it was really striking to me as I was the moderator for the event, seeing the different countries visually, seeing their cultures and listening to their understanding. It was both heartwarming and also um, just such a recognition that there is broad support for life. There is broad support for the family. There is broad support for advancing women's health. And yet we don't hear that often. And those voices are stronger as a result of the Geneva Consensus Declaration because it's not a single country having to defend itself. But if this coalition sticks together, it will be many voices in unison saying, we must protect life. We must protect the family. And by the way, it is our right to legislate on these issues. So United Nations, other progressive nations, we're not interested in a dialogue that is going to devalue any of those pillars. You've used the past in talking about this Geneva Consensus Declaration. I know that the declaration is still there and it's still signed, but there is something that changed after you left the administration, correct? Yes, very quickly after we left. In fact, very shortly after... We left the administration, which officially is at noon on Inauguration Day, before the sun set. There was one discernible policy removed from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services website. I couldn't find another. And what was removed was any mention of the Geneva Consensus Declaration. And then less than two weeks into President Biden's administration, he issued a presidential memo where he indicated that the United States was going to be withdrawing from the GCD and that they would be letting the countries of the world know that they were going to be withdrawing. So as of today and as of the new president of the United States, the U.S. does no more have a stance where he says internationally there is no international right to abortion and it does no more say internationally that 
countries of the world should be able to legislate on these matters based on their sovereignty. Is that right? Yes. And actually, to the contrary, as recently as this week, the administration has posted additional detail about our U.S. foreign policy around these issues. And each time there is another presidential missive on this, it's more and more deeply concerning. So just this week, the administration reiterated that sexual and reproductive health and rights, which is code word for abortion and code word to opposing the family, traditional family, is and will continue to be a priority both domestically and globally. And this this particular presidential talking point proclamation went into quite a bit of detail where even though abortion was never mentioned once in the entire document, it was very obvious that this is a high priority and countries are at risk for the very things that the Geneva Consensus Declaration was designed to prevent. So you mentioned sexual reproductive health because U.S. law demands that America does not promote abortion internationally, right? I figure there is like the Helms Amendment, the Biden Amendment, the Ciliander Amendment, Camp Gaston Amendment. Am I wrong or am I right? Well, you're right. But there are two points that I'd like to make regarding that. The first is, it's been very interesting that this administration has made a habit, whether speaking domestically or speaking globally, that they do not mention the word abortion, but they will use sexual and reproductive health and rights, which is inclusive, really, of all of their social agendas surrounding, really, the pillars of the GCD, whether it's expressed domestically or internationally. And I'm not sure why that is. And in fact, pro-abortion advocacy groups are beginning to question, why won't you use the word? And the word, of course, that they're talking about is abortion. But the second thing that you mentioned, there are prohibitions that have been long-standing, decades, bipartisan agreements that U.S. dollars are not to be used for the promotion or provision of abortion domestically or internationally. The Helms Amendment is international. But what's been very troubling is that the administration in sending their budget to Congress this year has removed the Helms Amendment, which would, if they succeed, will then for the first time in decades permit U.S. tax dollars to directly fund and promote abortion overseas. Yeah, the House Amendment prohibits the use of U.S. funds to perform abortions or to coerce individuals to practice abortion. So, well, that's news for some, for the ones that are not constantly following. And I think this is something everyone needs to hear. Valerie, I have a question then. So you've recently written a piece that we'll link in this podcast, like the time I had to apologize for America. But I would like to ask you, if this is the status of today's policies, how do we move forward and what can private citizens do? Well, I've been asking myself that question. And as each week goes by and we see more policies unraveling things, not only that the Trump administration has done, but things that have been in place for decades and decades surrounding these issues, it's easy to get demoralized. 
And I'll admit that I get discouraged from time to time, but I truly believe that upholding the Geneva Consensus Declaration and bolstering the resolve of those countries that signed on to that document is probably the best way to prevent the Biden administration and the Biden administration in tandem with other progressive countries from accelerating what is one of their top agenda items over the next four years. And so citizens can let their members of Congress know that they would like their member to publicly support the Geneva Consensus Declaration, that if their member is on a committee of jurisdiction over any kind of international decision-making, that they should be supportive of the GCD, that they should push back against the elimination of the Helms Amendment and make sure to preserve the Siljander Amendment. And the Siljander Amendment, again, is another provision that was a bipartisan agreement that the United States is neither to advocate for or advocate against abortion. And think about it. If the Helms Amendment is removed, how can the United States fund and promote abortion and still be compliant to the Siljander Amendment? Yeah, which again prohibits U.S. funds from being used to lobby for or against. So it just probably like the most basic recognition of state sovereignties on these very delicate issues. Very, very delicate. Yes. I really think that our members of Congress really hold the key here. And I know that there are so many issues that they are dealing with right now. But if we think about it for a moment, the protection of life, the protection of the family, it doesn't stop at our borders. And our influence doesn't stop at our borders. This is... If the agenda that is currently underway continues, that really besmirches America's image abroad among these countries, where these countries have over the years felt disrespected. And this isn't just a policy disagreement for these countries. I heard over and over again that these are issues that are core to how they identify as a nation. They're in their constitutions. They're a part of their cultural and religious heritage. So this isn't just an inconsequential disagreement. And when the United States completely ignores that and potentially even ties U.S. foreign assistance to countries changing their laws on these issues, American taxpayers should care about that. Members of Congress should care about that. We should all care about that because there are serious ramifications. I mean, I don't know if I speak as a foreigner here, but I think that really what makes America great and has always made it great is that for America, the protection of life never stopped at its borders. It was always an issue that regarded humanity and that's how America has acted. So Again, as a foreigner who is in love with this country, I really hope this will continue to be the case, as I know it is for most Americans. So, well, if this is the status of the Geneva Consensus, I think that the conclusion we can draw for now is we want our audience to, you know, 
click the links to the Geneva Consensus that we will have, read it, remember these things, read about what is happening, what keeps happening on the issue of abortion, keep following your work. But before I say goodbye and hoping to having you here another time and even, you know, you're going to be speaking in Texas soon, I wanted to highlight something else that you did during your time in the administration. So Valerie Uber led policy for the department's sex education programs. And she was a principal actor on the Title X regulation, which resulted in Planned Parenthood losing nearly $60 million in annual funding for the first time in 50 years. And more importantly, disrupting its network and reach among those most vulnerable to abortion. What happened there? Is that funding back? (laughs) Well, on the very day that the Biden administration issued an executive communique regarding the Geneva Consensus Declaration, a portion of that same communication uh, stated that they were going to look seriously at the Title X regulation that had been finalized under the Trump administration to see if it was harming women. Well, we knew exactly what their conclusion would be. And so already the administration has a proposed regulation that was posted to the Federal Register. There were about 19,000 comments from citizens across the country regarding that. And we are awaiting now a final rule or final regulation to take the place of the one that we promulgated. And we're expecting it before the start of the next fiscal year. And I can already predict what it will do. Our rule required that any abortion services needed to be in a separate location than any family planning services that were being funded by the federal government. There be no referrals to abortion and obviously no provision of abortion. It was on those requirements. Because I think, if I remember correctly, it's a provision in international law, the Cairo consensus, that abortion should never be considered a method of family planning. That's the exact word. Yes, that's actually in the law for Title X. But there have been different ways of interpreting that under different administrations that we would assert was contrary to both the letter and the spirit of the law. However, what the Biden administration is going to do, just based on what we read in the proposed rule, they will require any grantees to refer for abortion and to counsel on abortion. And there doesn't need to be any kind of physical separation between abortion services and those services in Title X. And so we believe that what the Biden administration is about to do is illegal. And I certainly hope it's litigated in courts. And I certainly hope the American people also make their voices known on this particular regulation. It really is at the tip of the spear here domestically on this debate. Well, it's probably good that people in Texas are hearing about this because if there's one thing Texas has been proved very good about is the defense of life, including very recently. And I hope, I don't know if you share hopes in this upcoming Supreme Court judgment. That is another thing that we'll see if it will be in any way influenced by the Geneva Consensus Declaration. Maybe maybe it will be referenced there. Can't keep hoping. I wanted to mention, Valerie, before you leave, that before joining the administration, you co-founded and led two nonprofit organizations, Reach and Ascend. 
and launched a professional credential for the field of sexual risk avoidance designed to empower young people to make healthy decisions in relationship and life to build personal responsibility, treat others with respect, and again, avoid risky behaviors when it came to sexual interactions, right? So instead of the two different approaches is risk avoidance in your case and uh, help me on the other that the one that is risk reduction, risk reduction. Right. So if you agree, it would be very nice for us to have you another time to talk about this. It's not what you've been most recently doing, but I know that this is your first love, right? It's what you are an expert on. So I really hope that you will accept our invitation for another time, but. Oh, yeah, I would love to. And I actually worked on those issues in the administration as well. Thank you very much. So I will be sure to message you again and find some time with you again on this. And good luck with your work. Thank you for what you did during the administration. Thank you also for your courage, notwithstanding the hostile media. But these are things that we can't not talk about and we can't stop. I agree. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Valerie. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.